RexMuscle.com brings you Quantum Physiques, building strength and power for your mind, your body, and your spirit. Alternative medicine, muscle growth, mode enhancement, motivation, putting your mind at ease, harnessing your maximum potential. Quantum Physiques, here's your host, Brian Cunningham. And welcome to another episode of Quantum Physiques here on RxMuscle.com. I am your host, Brian Cunningham, helping you build strength and power for mind, body, and spirit. We have a pretty phenomenal guest here tonight. We're going to take, take a little bit of a tangent and go into some really interesting concepts here with my friend and scholar, Howard Bloom. But I want to make a few uh, discussion points about last week's show. Got some really great feedback from people, of course. It was on the top 10 toxins and uh, had a quite, a, quite a lot of hits there on the, on the forum. So people are really interest, interested in that. And I wanted to kind of give you just an example of... Um, one particular uh, exposure people are getting in copious quantities without even realizing. This is uh, environmental toxins, and there is one in particular called triclosan, and there is growing uh, concern about its, um, I guess, role in human health. Now, again, of course, for athletes and, and bodybuilders, triclosan happens to be a xenoestrogen or estrogenic uh, compound, one of these uh, endocrine disruptors. So it does wreak havoc on, I guess, male hormones. And um, believe it or not, it's found in so many things, it's like ridiculous. I mean, I'm talking like toothpaste and soap and um, detergent and tents and, and mattresses and toys. It's ridiculous how ubiquitous this chemical is in, uh, in our environment, basically, in our, you know, in our, in our man-made environment. And what it does, basically, is uh, it's added primarily um, to kill bacteria. I guess it's the reason why it's found in soaps and, and shampoos and stuff is to kill bacteria. Um, however, there seems to be uh, you know, some controversy. I quote here somebody who is a senior scientist at the uh, NRDC, National Resource Defense Council. She says, uh, this is Jennifer Sass, washing your hands with so-called antibacterial soap containing triclosan or triclocarbon actually does nothing different than using regular soap and water. Using soap containing these chemicals does not provide an additional benefit, as consumers might think, but instead actually comes with a potential health risk. The FDA needs to prohibit these harmful chemicals from being put into products in the first place. So there is definitely, um, you know, some concern here. This is something, though, again, that the mainstream media doesn't even cover. And yet, um, you know, for people that want to be clean and probably wash their hands a lot, the uh, cumulative exposure of the stuff, the stuff does bioaccumulate. Uh, the cumulative exposure to this stuff does really um, provide concern for us. And uh, it's just one small example of how environmental toxins are really something to be concerned about. Now, changing gears, something else I thought was really interesting I saw this week was um, the top five regrets of the dying. Now, of course, one of the key elements of this show is to help people to live more fuller lives. And by kind of being honest and being brutal and kind of stripping down the facade that civilization or society has us living under these, these lies, these hallucinations, I think we all can live happier, healthier, and more fuller lives. And one of them, of course, is to face, you know, as Eckhart Tolle, a big fan of, would say, our, our mortality, to face the fact that we have a limited time down here and we better really appreciate uh, the game, but also get into the game, the game of life, of course. And this was a pretty interesting article um, from somebody who spent decades working with, uh, I guess, the people who were in, uh, you know, who were terminal, terminal patients. And she had um, top five regrets 
that these people had expressed to her over, over, over her years of working. And um, number five is, I wish that I had let myself be happier. Many people felt that they had stayed stuck in old patterns and habits for far too long. The so-called comfort of familiarity overflowed into their emotions as well as their physical lives. The fear of change, something we're big on discussing here, of course, the fear of change had them pretending to others and to themselves that they were happy. But deep within, they longed to laugh and to have more silliness in their life. So that was interesting. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Um, of course, this is many people that are so caught up in their own lives, they let valuable friendships slip by. This is probably more uh, important for men than women because men tend to be more uh, focused and one-dimensional and kind of like on their mission and at the expense of relationships. Women definitely tend to develop stronger social bonds and that's part of the reason why they have less stress and less heart disease. So this is something uh, of concern, especially for men. But it seems like number four on this list was that people regretted not staying in touch with friends. There were many deep regrets about not giving friendships the time and effort they deserved. Everyone misses their friends when they are dying, of course. And um, that's number four. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. She writes, many people suppress their feelings in order to keep peace with others. As a result, they settled for a mediocre existence and never became who they were truly capable of becoming. Many developed illnesses relating to the bitterness and resentment they carried as a result. Now, of course, we had T. Ma, the emotional healer who does uh, phenomenal work with cancer patients, uh, discussing uh, her entire show is based on healing emotions as a way to heal cancer. And uh, this is very apropos that this woman here writes about the fact that many people developed illnesses because of their emotional um, you know, stigmas. She goes on, we cannot control the reaction of others. However, although people may initially react when you change the way you are by speaking honestly, in the end, it raises the relationship to a whole new and healthier level. Either that or it releases the unhealthy relationship from your life. Either way, you win out. Number two on her list was, I wish I didn't work so hard. And that's a good one for um, Dave and Jeff and I, of course, we're all workaholics. She says, this came from every male patient that I nursed. (laughs) They missed their children's youth and their partner's companionship. Women also spoke of this regret, but as most were from an older generation, many of the female patients had not been breadwinners. All the men I nursed deeply regretted spending so much of their lives on the treadmill of, of a work existence. By simplifying your lifestyle and making conscious choices along the way, it is possible to not need the income you think you do. And by creating more space in your life, you become happier and more open to new opportunities, ones more suited to your new lifestyle. Very interesting. Number one on her list was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. This was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life is almost over and look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even a half of their dreams and had to die knowing that it was due to choices they had made or not made. It is very important to try and honor at least some of your dreams along the way. From the moment that you lose your health, it is too late. Health brings a freedom very few realize until they no longer have it. That's a great point, of course, and that's one of the key aspirations of this show is to really value and maximize uh, your health to really give you the, the mental 
stability and strength and physical stability and strength to step up and uh, you know and, and make that touchdown, make that goal in the game of life, and, and really get on with the, with the program. And uh, I just thought that was very apropos for this show. And uh, I forgot her name. Actually, it's not even on here. But uh, if anyone wants to read more about that, by all means, you can question that on the quantum physics page on facebook um and again please show your support for the show jeff and i work hard on bringing you guys a show every week and you can like us on the quantum physics page on facebook and then once again that's quantum physics we're going to take a quick break and come back with our guest stay tuned this is quantum physics here on rxmuscle.com quantum physics building strength and power for your mind body and spirit Visit ExtremeFitNutrition.com, the newest and hottest supplement super site. We carry all the major brands, including Species, MHP, BPI, BSN, Optimal Nutrition, Gasparri, and many more. Low on cash? No problem. ExtremeFitNutrition.com offers competitive prices that our competitors can't beat. Now you can supplement your diet without having to supplement your bank account. Here's some of our specials. Buy $100 worth of Species products or metabolic nutrition and get a free t-shirt and bag. Buy two. $200 worth of BSN products and receive a BSN t-shirt and shaker bottle. Check out ExtremeFitNutrition.com for more great deals. Visit us at the 2011 Olympia Expo. Stop by booth number 322 and meet IFBB pros Bethany Wagner, Guy Sister Nino, Tiana Gonzalez, and Gina Trociano. Remember, there's only one extreme. Visit ExtremeFitNutrition.com now. If you train hard, you need to recover hard. Training elevates cortisol, but so does stress and tension. Stress is the number one health risk you face today. and not only causes you to put on abdominal fat, but it's also one of the contributing factors in the top six causes of death, which includes heart disease and cancer. But now you can relieve that stress, rebuild, recover, and feel great with fast-acting Gabitrol. Gabitrol works quickly to help you improve relaxation and recovery, reduce cortisol, elevating stress, and reduce binge eating. Plus, Gabitrol will also help you to get that deep, restful sleep. Warriors are built, not born. And now you can build a better body with fast-acting Gabitrol. Recommended by New York Times number one best-selling author, Dr. John Gray, Gabitrol is available now at rxstress.com. Are you tired all day, not making the gains you like? Are you taking a long time to recuperate from your workouts? Then you may be suffering from sleep apnea and not even know it. Sleep apnea affects over 68% of athletes and it may be interfering with your performance. WinningEdgeSleep.com was developed by IFBB pro athlete Dr. Derling Castro to help athletes find out if they have this problem and how to fix it. WinningEdgeSleep.com Because sleep is the most anabolic agent there is. WinningEdgeSleep.com Visit them today. Hydrolyze Ultra, the leader in cellular hydration water. Hydrolyze Ultra water has been designed by shrinking and reshaping molecules to allow a faster and more sustained delivery into your cells. Our cellular water has gone through a magnetism and laser treatment process, along with adding electrolytes to our special ingredients. This allows all nutrients to be absorbed at a maximum cellular state. By using Hydrolyze Ultra, all nutrients, supplements, and carbohydrates you consume will be absorbed at a greater rate. Lactic acid gets flushed faster, and you'll feel full hydrated. Get the advantage that top athletes have achieved. Try Hydrolyze Ultra today. Visit HydrolyzeUltra.com That's HydrolyzeUltra.com 
28 High Protein Bread is the official bread of RX Muscle. Are you looking to incorporate more protein into your meals or just want to enjoy bread again? Then look no further. Try the 100% natural P28 High Protein Bread. P28 High Protein Bread is a formulated revolutionary breakthrough product. Packed with whey protein isolate, 14 grams of protein per slice, 12 grams of carbs, 8 essential amino acids, and made with 100% whole wheat. Fear bread no more. Build a better body with P28. Order today at HighProteinBread.com. P28 is also now available at Bodybuilding.com and many other retailers. Order now. HighProteinBread.com. P28 Bread. RX Muscle approved. RxMuscle.com. Now you have a place to turn when you want the truth on bodybuilding, diet, and exercise. Up to the minute news and more. Visit the RxMuscle.com forums featuring celebrity Q and A's with IFBB professional athletes, top amateurs, and the brightest minds in the industry. Listen to our weekly radio shows, including Heavy Muscle Radio, Muscle Girls Inc., After Hours, and more. Contest coverage, videos, even our own social networking site, Rx Muscle Place. Visit RxMuscle.com. And welcome back to Quantum Physiques, where we strive to build strength and power for mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Brian Cunningham, and as I mentioned earlier, I have a very special guest, somebody I've known for over a decade now. Uh, words cannot begin to describe how incredible this person is and what his vision is of, of assisting the transformation of society into the, the next paradigm. Um, Howard Bloom is a visiting scholar at New York University. He's the founder of the International Paleopsychology Project. Uh, he was a former PR giant in the music industry, having worked with such groups as Michael Jackson, Prince, and Billy Joel. So he obviously is very well tuned in to the zeitgeist of human culture, and he knows what's going on. He's had his fingertips on these buttons for, for decades now himself. And uh, he also is a prolific writer and scholar. I met him over 10 years ago, I spent about nine hours with him on New Year's Day, the year 2000, the beginning of the new uh, millennia, talking about his first book, The Lucifer Principle. And he's gone on since then to write two more books, uh, the most recent one, which really is a, um, an incredible book called The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism. Now, just for the listening audience to understand what this has to do with them, of course, uh, we were just discussing the fact that without a stable Society and without trucks driving food into supermarkets and protein powder on the shelves uh, and gyms staying open because their electric bills are paid, none of the things we value are going to be there, of course, without that type of stability and infrastructure. And as we hang on the precipice right now of something out of a, a biblical or a Mayan prophecy with 2012, you know, dawning upon us within minutes, literally, uh, it's key to understand here that the economic and political revolutions going on are not. Nothing short of radical. When you have someone like uh, Kramer on CNBC talking about um, DEFCON 4, which means basically that there's a potential meltdown coming on to society here. Trust me, folks, this will affect every single facet of your life, muscle or no muscle, six-pack abs or no six-pack abs. So I think that Howard Bloom's message and his inspiration of hope for the future is something really well worth listening to. So without further ado... I want to welcome my friend and scholar, Howard Bloom. Howard, welcome to Quantum Physiques. Thanks, Brian, and thanks for, for being there as a rock and redeemer for me for 11 years. 
Well, Howard, like I said, you've done a lot to help spread the message of hope um, in a time where many people are, as you know, both economically depressed, but also uh, psychologically depressed as well. I mean, there are more prescription medication, uh, more drugs written for for pain and for depression in this country than in the whole world combined. So obviously there's something going on here with, uh, with our values, with, with the way society has been functioning. And I think that your, you know, your words and, and your message really is, is most appropriate at, at this dark age we find ourselves in, which well, of Brian, course you would say is not a dark age. <laughs> we, we have an incredible perception problem. The reality is that um, between 1850 and 2000, we doubled the human lifespan. We took it from 38.5 years to 78 years. That's more than doubling. That's like getting two lives for the price of one, just because you're living within this incredibly yeasty, creative enterprise called Western civilization. Um, between 1992 and today, the, uh, the rate of violence, both internal violence and violence in the form of war, has gone down dramatically. And in fact, if you look at the last 500 years, you'll see the rate of violence steadily going down. Um, there's something called the Flynn effect. We're adding basically three IQ points every 10 years, which means that if you took a, a person, an average person with an IQ of 100 in 1900, and measured his IQ today, in current IQ terms, his IQ would be approximately 80, which means he would be regarded as mentally retarded. And if you, if you did the flip, if you took that person, uh, if you took the average person's IQ today and used the IQ measuring tests of 1900, an average person, an average human being would come out with an IQ of 135, which is very close to genius. All of this has happened right under our noses. All of it has happened right on our watch. A lot of it has happened even in the last 20 years, and we are blind to it. Now, the big trick is this. A civilization that goes up, or a civilization that looks up goes up. A civilization that looks down goes down. Um, if you perceive yourself aiming toward a high aspirational goal, you can achieve it. Now, that doesn't mean you will automatically achieve it. There's a big deception in movies like The Secret, which tell you that if you focus on your goal with all your heart and soul, you will achieve it. No, anyone who does bodybuilding knows that there are two elements to achieving an incredible body. One is seeing the goal ahead of you, and the second is utter persistence, working at it every day, which means as a civilization, if we raise our eyes to the skies, if we aspire high, if we realize that this is not the decline and fall of a civilization, this is the opportunity for a civilization that's been climbing to soar. Um, if we see that and see clearly what we want, what we want to aim for, we will go up and we must go up. That's a great point, Howard. I mean, one thing I definitely think you hit upon right on the money, buddy, is the fact that, you know, athletes and bodybuilders are very disciplined. We, you know, we're warriors in a sense, right? And you, you myself, uh, you, you, my friend, are a warrior as well. I mean, I know you work countless hours on your book and you've amassed countless reams of data before you synthesize these, these works of genius, really. So the point is, though, is that while athletes and bodybuilders and intellectual scholars like yourself may be focused and disciplined, the general public, though, I mean, obesity rates are epidemic. People are becoming, it seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, fatter, more distracted, and more medicated at large. And I'm wondering, is this trend an illusion or, is, or are you saying there's something still here that's kind of hopeful for us? 
Well, the trend is for real, but the fact is those obese people are a lot brighter than they would have been if they had been obese 100 years ago. The second <laughs> thing is that those people would have been starving 100 years ago, and yeah. that obesity comes from the fact that we've solved most of the food problems of the world, and we don't recognize it. This is not to say that people are not starving to death in Africa. They are, but the percentage of people starving in the world has gone down intensely, astonishingly, amazingly. And so the problem of the poor is no longer starvation. The problem of the poor is obesity. There's another little problem here, and it's another problem of perception. Anything, you know, once upon a time, Napoleon Hill said, anything you perceive, you conceive, and believe, you can achieve. And one of the many uh, epigrams that I've written um, talks about the fact that new ways of seeing lead to new ways of being. Well, here's how we trip ourselves up, another way that we trip ourselves up perceptually. In the 1960s, there was a major movement in the, in the educational community. And that movement said it is not important to teach kids facts. They'll learn how to deal with facts with us or without us, with teachers or without teachers. It is important for schools to give kids a positive self-image. So the notion of educating kids went out the window and it was replaced by the notion of getting kids to feel good about themselves. Well, if you look at the, uh, at the scores uh, in America on how we feel about ourselves these days, we have remarkable self-confidence. If you look at the scores in Korea and Japan and China, they have remarkably low self-confidence. But guess what? Which is it better to have, low self-confidence or high self-confidence? Turns out that it's better to have low self-confidence if you are rating yourself as a 75 on a scale of 1 to 100 because you see the 25 you need to achieve, the 25 stairs you need to climb. And the Koreans, the Japanese, and the Chinese have a lower um, self-image because they see themselves as the bottom of a staircase that they need to climb and will climb with all their heart and soul every single day, every single day of their lifetime. Well, back to bodybuilding. What do you do to bodybuild? If you just imagine you've got a great body, if you think you've already got the perfect body when you're obese, um, you don't do a thing to build yes, yourself. Yes, great but point. If, but if you see yourself as wanting to ascend on a ladder toward the Charles Atlas body or whatever its equivalent is today, what Arnold Schwarzenegger's body used to be, then you see the hundred steps, the thousand steps, the 10,000 steps that you need to take. And if you climb those steps every single day, eventually you will not be obese. Eventually you will have the Charles Atlas body. You will have the Arnold Schwarzenegger body. Well, what does that mean for Western civilization? It means that we have to get off this pill, this drug, of positive self-image not related to achievement. We have to recognize that it's achievement that gives you the right to a positive self-image. And we always have to aspire higher. And, and I, I want to tell you an REO Speedwagon story that relates to this. But first, you get a chance to talk. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that you talk about a lot here is is uh, the dynamics of, of how you think and feel. And of course, you and I touched upon this in your first book with the concept of neuroplasticity. Now, I was watching a show last night, very interesting anecdote here about cheetahs and lions and how, um, get this, 
there were three male cheetahs fighting over a female, and they all basically, actually, they raped the female cheetah. Now, this is a new phenomenon that's been observed where they thought only primates uh, did rape, but actually, even even cats uh, will also basically, you know, rape the female. But because they were so obsessed with this uh, imperative, this biological imperative, that they were blind to a male lion that was coming in, and he actually ended up killing a male and a female cheetah in the process. And of wow. course, the, the the announcer was like, "This is how blind." testosterone can be and of course I took it as being here they go again blaming testosterone but you know there is this concept of neuroplasticity that I want you to hit upon as far as how people can realize that just by winning a game of chess or winning a game of basketball they can rewire the brain on the fly um, you know but it does point to the fact that we are still biological robots to some degree and we are I guess subject to our, our me- mechanistic imperatives and maybe you could just elaborate on a little bit of that what you think about that well I think most most people are aware of the research on neuro plasticity these days. They know that if you practice the violin from the age of five and you continue to practice it daily, there are parts of your brain that grow. There are parts of your brain, your brain has a hundred trillion, a hundred billion cells. Um, and it assigns those cells to the areas that are active. It'll actually take an area like well, the, the famous example is a blind kid. There was a blind kid who was capable of getting on his bicycle and riding around in his neighborhood. Well, how in the world did he do it? He was blind. How did he keep keep from hitting the cars parked on the side of the road? How did he keep from ending up traveling across people's lawns? How did he manage to stay on the road and avoid traffic? Well, it turns out that he made a high-pitched sound the way that bats made a high-pitched sound, a sort of eee. And he was capable of hearing, he was capable of seeing via that sound. In other words, he could hear the echoes coming off of buildings, but he didn't hear them, Brian. The trick is he saw them. What does that mean? A certain portion of the brain is set aside. Well, there are huge portions of the brain that are set aside for vision. Half the brain, some people say, or at least half the cortex is set up for vision. Vision is very important to us human beings. But when you stop input from the eyes, then the ears can take over all of that territory. They can take care of, take over all of those billions of neurons and those neurons get reassigned so that you've got a kid going down the street he's making a high-pitched sound like e and he's seeing it you know it's as if it's incredible sure. in his head right so that's the power of neuroplasticity um violinists have a really serious problem because if there are two notes that they tend to hit one after the other on a very, very regular basis, eventually the brain figures, hey, these two notes always go together. Let's save ourselves some neuronal space. We'll just join the two parts that handle these two different actions together. Um, and we'll be able to assign neural space elsewhere. Well, the problem then is that whenever you try to use one of the fingers that's been trained to go off with another finger, the two fingers go together. And you are incapable of playing the violin properly. Um, that's because of neuroplasticity. Two th- things that happen to you on a regular basis, brain, brain matter is assigned to handle. And some of that brain matter actually grows. So if you pick a perceptual goal and you dedicated yourself to it every day and you work at the next step toward it every day, if you have the persistence that Americans have not been taught for the last 50 years, you will ascend and the amount of brain dedicated to achieving what it is that you have in mind will increase. Increase. You will, as you said, you will, yeah, you will literally re-sculpt the morphology of your brain. That's incredible. It it will still look like a human brain, 
but <laughs> there's a reassignment going on here. No, that's great. And, you know, Howard, I appreciate you taking a minute just to uh, have me chime in there, but let's get back. One thing about Howard and I is we both think very similarly. We're both very tangential. So we're going to go back now, Howard, to your REO Speedwagon story, and let's pick it up from there. <laughs> okay, the REO Speedwagon story. Let's start with Alexander the Great. The famous story about Alexander the Great is that once he had conquered Persia, he climbed to the top of a mountain and wept because he said he had no more worlds to, to, to conquer. And he <laughs> wept because conquering worlds was what he enjoyed doing the most in his life. Um, and all of a sudden, there was no new place to conquer. He was going to have to sit around and just run a state. He wasn't interested in that. Um, well, Arius, in other words, you, you have to have goals. Humans need goals to keep us alive. And no matter what goal you've achieved, you have to have a further goal down the line or you begin to die. Um, Aria Speedwagon, I worked with Aria Speedwagon for three years. Now, first of all, how did I get into the music industry when I'm a science nerd, when I had grown up from the age of 10 in microbiology and theoretical physics? Well, I wanted to understand the human passions that make history. And um, to understand them, I was going to have to get into pop culture. And I succeeded. And I got into an area I knew absolutely nothing about, rock and roll. <laughs> Um, I, I was asked to edit a magazine, and I didn't even ask what the magazine was about because I felt that if you're really dedicated, if you do a lot of research and you really love your audience, no matter who that audience is, and you want to serve them with all your heart and soul, it doesn't matter what the subject is. You can do it. So when I arrived for my interview with this magazine, the editor or the publisher told me what it was. It was a rock and roll magazine. Brian, I didn't know anything about rock and roll. All I knew was that James Taylor was a male and Carol King was a female, and I knew that by their names. Uh, there was a tip-off with the first name of each of them. Sure. So I, I went to work studying rock and roll like a Talmudic scholar. Um, I studied my tail off, and at the end of the year, I was capable of predicting what albums would be in the top ten on the charts four months from now. Because I needed to know that. I needed to put people who were going to be on the top ten four months from now on the cover of my magazine. And the, and the fact was that we had a four-month lead time. So I had to learn something incredibly tricky, and people used to take me out to lunch just to ask me questions like, where did the last Jethro Tull album uh, peak on the charts? And I could answer that off the top of the head. Well, eventually, and this is all a science project, to understand the forces of history. Um, eventually, I founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry. And I loved working with underdogs. I loved working with acts that nobody else wanted to work with. Well, the people at CBS knew this. And they came to the end of a fiscal year, and they still had a bunch of thousands of dollars in their budget. And if they didn't spend it, they were going to lose it. Well, they had a band that nobody liked. Everybody at, at CBS and Epic Records hated this band. They did not want to have to work on it. So they figured, okay, Howard loves working with bands that everybody hates. We'll give Howard the thousands of dollars, and he can work on Ario Speedwagon. So for three years, Ario Speedwagon toured their little tails off, and I worked with them publicizing them, uh, working my tail off, working Sundays, Saturdays. Well, you know the way I work seven days a week and 12 hours sure. a day. That's right. And, um, and at the end of three years, um, REO Speedwagon um, did something miraculous. The year was 1981. It was the biggest crash since the Depression, the biggest crash until the one we're living through right now. And okay. in the record industry, you, if you shipped 100 records to a store and they only sold 90 of them, they sent 10 of them back. Those 10 were called returns. Well, nobody was able to sell records in 1981. It, it, was, it was an economic catastrophe. Nobody was spending any money on anything. Um, and the phrase in the industry was, you, you, ship plat you ship gold 
and your plat you get platinum returns. In other words, you <laughs> ship five hundred thousand copies sure. and the store sends you back a million. Um, <laughs> So in that year when nobody could sell records and when every single record company with the exception of CBS was laying off staff, CBS was not laying off staff. Why? Because REO Speedwagon had the biggest selling album in the year that uh, in the world that year. They sold 15 million albums worldwide when nobody could sell albums. So they came into New York and they were staying at a ritzy hotel on 56th Street and 50, between 56th and 57th, one of those that crosses and you can go out on the entrance on 56th or you can go across the street to the park. And I went to, to their hotel room and tried to explain something to them. I said, if you think you've made it, you're dead. If you think that, it's, that you've achieved the highest peak that you possibly can, you are dead in the water. This is the most dangerous day of your career because sustaining stardom is even harder than achieving it. So you have to look at what you've just achieved as the 4,000-foot hit, hit foothill, the, the peak of a 4,000-foot um, mountain that's merely a foothill to the 17,000-high uh, mountains beyond. And if you see this as just a stepping stone toward the mountains beyond, you will be okay. But if you don't see those mountains beyond, you are in serious trouble. Well, they didn't listen or they didn't understand. Um, they, had, they, they had worked their asses off in Champaign, Illinois to become the biggest frat band in Champaign, Illinois, and they had achieved it. Then they had worked their asses off to become the biggest uh, bar band or the biggest frat band in all of Illinois, and they had achieved it. Then they'd work toward the goal of becoming the biggest band, period, touring band in all of the Midwest. And they had achieved it. Well, the next step was going to be trying to become the biggest band in the USA. And the next step beyond that was going to be uh, becoming the biggest band in the world. But they skipped a step. They went directly from the being, being the biggest band in the Midwest to being the biggest band in the world. And Kevin Crow, and they didn't know where to go next. Kevin Cronin, the, the leader of the band and the songwriter and the voice of the band, said all of his life he had thought of himself as rebelling against the guys in the plaid suits with the big cigars who drove around in Cadillac convertibles. And all of a sudden, he felt like he was the guys in the plaid suit. He was one of those guys. So the band spent the next year of their lives in hotel rooms in Hawaii without ever opening the drapes in the morning to look at the beach. They lay on the bed, they did cocaine and alcohol, and they stared at the ceiling. They were depressed because they had no further mountain to climb. You always need a further mountain to climb. Western civilization has achieved incredible things. It's given us the cell phone, it's given us the laptop, it's given us powers that it would have taken evolution, biological evolution, hundreds of millions or even billions of years to achieve. And we've done this ourselves. Um, but this is just the beginning, folks. If we don't see this as just the prelude to something far, far bigger, we are in the same trouble as REO Speedwagon. Oh, I definitely agree, Howard. And you've hit upon a lot of points I want to bring up. The first one that really goes back to our listeners again is the idea of um, what the lead singer was talking about, rebelling against the suits. Because as you know, rock and roll is all about being a rebel. You know, uh, James, James Dean, rebel without a cause. Um, you know, right. athletes and the alpha male, you could say also, is a rebel also. Of course, these, you know, the young buck who wants to challenge society, um, to some degree, there's a rebellion, a rebellious nature there too. And you could say to some degree, these are kind of quote-unquote 
testosterone-driven activities. Now, it's kind of funny how um, on your Wikipedia page, you were, um, I guess, one of the people that were kind of stepping up for defending rock and roll when they were blaming it for all the stuff. They're blaming rock and roll for suicides and all kinds of crazy things. And you know, Howard, in our community, they blame steroids and testosterone for being really evil. It makes men really aggressive and stuff. But what is this, Howard, this love-hate relationship with alpha males or with rebels? Because as you know, they serve a very important uh, you know, they're, they're the antithesis of the quote-unquote conformity enforcers. And maybe you could elaborate, because you know all about conformity enforcers and, and rebels without a cause. Maybe you could share a little bit about the alpha male, Howard. Well, there's a story about bees. Now, bees don't have alpha males, but it's a story that's <laughs> very relevant to the value of rebellion um, in a society. Um, a bee colony is a search engine. A bee colony is up against a challenge, and it's a life-and-death challenge. A bee colony has to acquire 40 pounds of honey um, during the spring, uh, or it won't make it through the winter. Um, sometime in the middle of the winter when it's dark and cold and all the honeybees are clinging together and buzzing their wings in order to produce warmth, but otherwise trying to save energy, at some point that honey will run out and whammo. When that honey runs out in December, that bee colony is dead. So the challenge is get 40 pounds of honey. If you don't make it, you're dead. Um, the bees, so bees work on a, a combination of conformity enforcers and diversity generators. They work on the basis of uh, conformists and nonconformists, bohemians. 95% of the bees are conformists. So if there's a nice patch of linden flowers that is going to produce a lot of pollen and nectar, all of the conformists go flying off to the linden patch. Um, <laughs> and, when they come, and when they come home, they experience a kind of gratification that's very similar to what you and I live for. Um, there is a, a landing dock, a loading dock, basically, in the hive. And an incoming bee goes to that loading dock, and there are unloaders. And if she, if, if, okay, imagine you're one of these bees. Um, you're, you're, uh, you have these big hairs on the back of your legs on, on your, the, your back thighs that are carrying baskets. And you also have a second stomach, and your second stomach is for carrying liquids like nectar. So you arrive on the lip of the hive, and if you've got something that the unloaders feel is needed inside the hive, the unloaders rush over to you and they treat you like a rock star. They feel you all over with their antennae, they, they put their tongues down your throat into your second stomach to see what you're carrying. They give you so much attention, it's ridiculous. And when they finish unloading you, you are so peppy, it is absurd. Um, <laughs> your temperature, your body temperature actually goes up and you go back to those linden flowers to get more of that good stuff that you can bring back that will get you the attention that will set your spirit soaring. And this is, we're talking in, in anthropomorphic terms here, but this of is course. really what does happen. It is what happens with bees. Um, but eventually the linden flowers, the pollen and nectar begins to run out. Well, you don't believe that. You know, it's like getting a paycheck from a factory. You can't believe that's not the source of your income anymore. So you go back time after time after time and there's nothing there. Um, and you come home and with empty, empty pockets, empty side pouches, empty, <laughs> empty carrying hairs. So in the beginning, when you start coming back empty, the unloader bees come over to you to check you out, and they check out their, your thighs and see that you're not carrying anything. They check out your second stomach by sticking their tongue down your throat. You're not carrying anything, and they lose interest in you, and they turn their backs on you. Literally. This is literally what happens to poor bees. Um, finally, when you start coming back, they know you already. They know you're showing up with nothing. They don't even look 
at you. And this is extraordinarily dispiriting to a bee. It's as dispiriting to a bee as it is to you and me, which demonstrates that humans and bee colonies have certain basic things in common. The, the, of the course. Of a search engine. So at any rate, meantime, uh, and you finally get so discouraged. I mean, you, you fly more and more and more slowly back to the linden flowers and more and more slowly back to the hive until finally you give up. And you crawl into the hive and you literally crouch and beg for food from other bees. Um, it's humiliating. And you, your spirits are totally gone. Absolutely gone. You're in a state that's very much the functional equivalent to human depression. Meanwhile, while 95% of you um, conformist bees have been going along with each other and going back to the patch of the day, the flower patch of the day, um, there is a, a, a 5% group of bees. It, it varies from 2% to 20%, sure. but it's roughly 5% of the bees. These bees are assholes. These bees are, bo <laughs> these bees are bohemians. Um, when everybody else is working, they're farting around. What do they do? They, they fly out from the hive when everybody else does in the morning, but they, they take trips of up to eight miles just following their noses, following their instincts, taking loops and twists and turns and doing nothing, doing absolutely nothing. I mean, you know, they're indulging themselves to the nth sure. degree. They're the artists among the bees. Yeah, there you well, go. Okay, when all of us other, well, all of us conformists um, have plundered the linden patch to the nth degree and we've all gotten discouraged and we're all crawling around inside the hive just looking for food from others and it's humiliating believe me there is an equivalent to humiliation in the world of bees and it's humiliating as can possibly be we are starved for guess what we're starved for entertainment we're starved for something that will excite us we're starved for something that will bring our body temperature back up again we're starved for something that will make us feel connected and needed again so where do we find it well it turns out very close to the unloading dock there's basically a performance platform. And some of those good-for-nothing bohemian bees who've simply been looping and ambling and zigging and zagging for no reason whatsoever have found flower patches. And they come back and they report on the flower patches. How do they do it? They dance. They dance the famous figure eight of the bees that indicates how far it is to the flower patch, what direction the flower patch is in, how heavy the headwinds and tailwinds are, all the information you need to go over there and check it out. So there are four or five of these godforsaken bohemian bees dancing their little tails off, doing the waggle dance. And you and I are what uh, Thomas Seeley, who's the leading expert on bee behavior of this kind, calls unemployed bees. We are desperate for something to entertain us. And we go and check out the dancers. Well, one dancer only dances for four waggles. One dance only dance, dancer only dances for 30 seconds. And another dancer, if it's an extreme condition, will dance for 27 to 30 minutes. And we judge the bees by the intensity, the enthusiasm with which they dance, the length of their dance. So we check out each bee. We check it out with our antennae. We follow it in the path of its figure eight. And if that bee is sufficiently persuasive, a few of us finally get the courage to do something we were just too depressed to do only 20 minutes earlier. We fly out and check the findings of this bee. We follow her instructions. We go to the fl new flower patch that she is talking about through her dance. And if we get excited, we come back to the hive and we dance our asses off too. 
And the bee who, there are five bees competing for our attention, the attention of us conformists, us unemployed conformists, <laughs> and the bee who gets the most backup dancers wins. And when that bee wins, we all go off to the new flower patch, and once again, we come back with stuff that the hive needs, and once again, the alora bees treat us like rock stars, and it's the repetition of that pattern that makes the beehive effective in meeting this deadline of gathering everything it'll need for 40 pounds of honey in just six weeks. Because the time in which the pollen and nectar are really producing is only six weeks long early in the summer. From that point on, it's all deficit. Um, it's all a problem. Um, so if we make, as, as a hive, we make the right decisions and we plunder the right flower patches, we will make it through the winter. If our collective decisions about where to go next are wrong, that's the end of us. In December or January, we will all die. That's heavy-duty stuff. Well, rebels play the same role in human society, and every generation produces its own barbarians. And guess what they're called? Teenagers. Adolescents. Those are the Full of testosterone. Of there you go. Exactly. Full of testosterone. Right <laughs> now, the, to back to the testosterone for a moment, since these female bees are not necessarily operating on testosterone, but they are operating on differences in body temperature that 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 indicate degrees of excitement or degrees of um, uh, total 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 disconnection. Um, but there's another animal example that helps explain the testosterone, and it's Langer monkeys. In a group of Langer monkeys, a well-established male has a harem. And he sits pretty in the middle of his harem. He's the alpha male that you've been talking about. Um, that a strange thing, ha and he gives, he, you know, he keeps the, 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 the ladies pregnant. And so there are lots of kids, and they're all his kids. But a funny thing happens when those kids begin to mature sexually, when they go into adolescence, when they go into their equivalents of teenagehood, the years in which rock and roll grab hold of the soul of human beings. They start to smell funny to their parents. And their parents start to smell funny to them. And through a variety of biological means of the sort, they are driven out of the family. They find a need to establish their identity outside of the family they were born in. Well, once they eject themselves from the family, much as humans at that age tend to eject themselves from the family, um, who do they get to hang out with? Other rejects, others who, who ejected themselves from their families. And those groups form their, like, they're gangs, they're bands, literally bands. They are bands of young toughs. They are bands of hooligans. What makes them hooligans? Well, when they see a, a, an alpha male sitting pretty in the middle of his females who looks weak to them, they go and challenge him. Now, standing up to the challenge of a gang of adolescents is not easy for a male, but most alpha males manage it. But eventually, these gangs find males who really are vulnerable, who've gotten old, who've gotten slow, um, who've lost confidence in themselves. And when they challenge one of those males, they drive him out of the group. Once they drive him out of the group, they take all of the children that he's sired and they kill them. They kill them so that uh, something called lactational amenorrhea will take place. The yeah, females, the females go back into right. estrus. That's right. Sure. Right. Exactly. The females, when they're when they're nursing, when they are uh, nursing their babies, uh, have an internal birth control device. But when they stop nursing babies, the internal birth control device turns off, and they become ripe um, again, ripe for impregnation. So you, if you've gone into this group, you kill all the babies, and then. 
the gang of males, you know what they do? They battle each other until the one alpha male establishes himself. Then all of the other males are banished from this group, and this one guy who won um, takes over the group, and then he starts having his own children. And someday he will have children who become adolescents, and they will be driven out of the group, and they will gather together in gangs. And someday, when he gets weak, one of those gangs will finally topple him from his place. Yeah. But the value to society is the value of the rebel. It's the value of new blood. It's the value of new knowledge. Now, in fact, many monkey societies don't do a great job of bringing in new knowledge. And, and one of the things, one of the, well, things that allows you to see this is the difference between chimpanzees and baboons. You see Jane Goodall going on television periodically and begging for money and begging for, for attention to the fact that we are destroying the habitat of chimpanzees and we must keep these precious creatures alive. And as a consequence, we must save the habitat. Well, has anybody, have you ever seen anybody on TV pleading the case of the baboons? No. Or you have any idea of why? Baboons are much yeah. more resilient. If I were to guess, they're a much more resilient um, primate than chimps are. They're much more adaptable. That's where you got it absolutely right. Baboons are considered the rats of Africa because yes, uh, exactly. no, matter what, no matter what building you build to hold your uh, stores <laughs> of flour and, and goodies, the baboons will find a way into it. No matter where you hide your goodies in your kitchen, the baboons will manage to get into your kitchen and find a way to it. No matter what you try to farm, the baboons will find, and no matter what kind of electrified fences you put up along, around the farm, the baboons will find their ways through the electrified fences. Baboons adapt to any environment you throw their way. They're so we're more like baboons than chimps then, <laughs> it sounds we're like. We're more like baboons like than <laughs> chimps, and we're we like are. bees. Because bees are very effective information processors. They're very effective at finding the next opportunity and mining it. Chimp uh, baboons are very effective at finding the next resource and mining it, at turning something that looks like a challenge or something that doesn't even look like a challenge, something that looks like a danger and a risk. They are good at taking a danger, a risk, or a wasteland and turning it into opportunity, which That's is what right. humans have to do. And sure. it's because they have a different group structure, because they have a structure in which they have outriders and young males um, who go out and are extremely curious and test all kinds of things. Why? Because they're going out on their own. And going out on their own forces them to check out territory that the elders have not checked out. And they can come back to the troop with the information on what they've checked out, and they can become heroes. And I can tell you the story of baboon heroes, but first we'll take a break so you can talk. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, the metaphor, Howard, of the bee colony is phenomenal because um, there is a book out there called Molecules of Emotion by Candace Pert, and she illustrates the fact that, you know, in spite of your anthropom anthropomorphizing, uh, insects actually do share the same molecules of emotion that we do. They find serotonin and GABA in bees and, and mosquitoes. So these animals, the, these insects, these little creatures are motivated by the same uh, emotions that we are. And so I think it's a very apropos uh, analogy, but also even at large, Her Howard, is the fact that together we really are a collective organism. And of course, that harkens back to your second book, Global Brain, where really it's in essence the collective suffering or, or the collective genetic diversity, this richness of society that wields together a very strong ecosystem. And so really, as you know, Howard, one of your biggest messages is preaching um, tolerance because it is the conflagration of or the, the communion of Jews and Muslims and blacks and whites and gays and transgender and all types of people that 
makes our ecosystem so rich and diverse. And of course, in a rainforest, that same richness is what makes the the, the, the system itself resilient. Is that not correct? Right, you've got absolutely. James Fallows is the expert on this. He's the national correspondent for the Atlantic, and he uh, put out a book about 15 years ago on this. And what he pointed out is that America has been the leading civilization in the world for the last hundred years. Um, because of its diversity, because it constantly uh, welcomes new immigrants. In Silicon Valley, 50% of the new startups are started by immigrants. Wow. Immigrants are people who, they have the gumption to leave home. They have the courage to leave home. They have the curiosity to leave home. They have aspirations of a dream beyond the lifestyle that they're born into. Um, many Americans lose that. I mean, we talked about that when we were talking about the curse of American uh, self-confidence and on, on, uh, self-confidence that isn't earned in many cases. And, and the curse of Americans not having the next goal to run toward. Well, somebody who comes here from India has high goals uh, to move toward. And people who have high goals to move toward, high aspirations, achieve incredible things. That's what immigrants do. You'll find people from Haiti, which is a country that is so remarkably uh, maladaptive that we just can't figure out how to make it work. But apparently the problem is not the Haitians, the problem is the structure. Because when those Haitians come to the United States, they become some of the most productive citizens we've got. The same thing with... With, with citizens of Barbados and Trinidad. Um, ten years ago, the, the richest um, sub-community within the United States was the Indian community. That is the community of people who came here from India. Um, because these people are willing to work their asses off. Well, it's time for us Americans who were born here to work our asses off. It's time for us to establish extremely high aspirations for ourselves. It's time for us to work toward new paradises that need to be achieved by a million steps, two million steps, three million steps, and dedicate ourselves to achieving them in the way that we dedicated ourselves. I know this is a cliche, but in the way that we dedicated ourselves to the Apollo program and getting to the moon. As Kennedy said at the time, some words that I'm stunned to discover, some people at least have forgotten these days. And those words were, we choose to do this not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And anybody who does bodybuilding will recognize the value of those words. That's phenomenal, Howard, because one of the quotes I've always said is uh, a a quote from, uh, I think it's Lao Tzu, if you want an easy life, take the hard way, and if you want, if you take the easy way, you'll have a hard life, which is exactly what you said, and uh, I really appreciate that. Howard, let's take a quick break, and I want to come back and discuss with you reality being a shared hallucination. Once again, this (laughs) this is Quantum Physiques. We'll be right back after this quick break. Quantum Physiques. Building strength and power for your mind, body, and spirit. Visit ExtremeFitNutrition.com, the newest and hottest supplement super site. We carry all the major brands, including Species, MHP, BPI, BSN, Optimal Nutrition, Gaspari, and many more. Low on cash? No problem. ExtremeFitNutrition.com offers competitive prices that our competitors can't beat. Now you can supplement your diet without having to supplement your bank account. Here's some of our specials. Buy $100 worth of Species products or metabolic nutrition and get a free t-shirt and bag. Buy $200 worth of BSN products and receive a BSN t-shirt and shaker bottle. Check out ExtremeFitNutrition.com for more great deals. Visit us at the 2011 Olympia Expo. Stop by booth number 322 and meet IFBB pros Bethany Wagner, Guy Cisternino, Tiana Gonzalez, and Gina Trociano. Remember, there's only one extreme. Visit ExtremeFitNutrition.com now. 
If you train hard, you need to recover hard. Training elevates cortisol, but so does stress and tension. Stress is the number one health risk you face today. And not only causes you to put on abdominal fat, but it's also one of the contributing factors in the top six causes of death, which includes heart disease and cancer. But now you can relieve that stress, rebuild, recover, and feel great with fast-acting Gabatrol. Gabatrol works quickly to help you improve relaxation and recovery, reduce cortisol, elevating stress, and reduce binge eating. Plus, Gabatrol will also help you to get that deep, restful sleep. Warriors are built, not born. And now you can build a better body with fast-acting Gabatrol. Recommended by New York Times number one best-selling author, Dr. John Gray. Gabatrol is available now at rxstress.com. Are you tired all day, not making the gains you like? Are you taking a long time to recuperate from your workouts? Then you may be suffering from sleep apnea and not even know it. Sleep apnea affects over 68% of athletes and it may be interfering with your performance. WinningEdgeSleep.com was developed by IFBB pro athlete Dr. Derling Castro to help athletes find out if they have this problem and how to fix it. WinningEdgeSleep.com because sleep is the most anabolic agent there is. WinningEdgeSleep.com. Visit them today. Hydrolyze Ultra, the leader in cellular hydration water. Hydrolyze Ultra water has been designed by shrinking and reshaping molecules to allow a faster and more sustained delivery into your cells. Our cellular water has gone through a magnetism and laser treatment process, along with adding electrolytes to our special ingredients. This allows all nutrients to be absorbed at a maximum cellular state. By using Hydrolyze Ultra, all nutrients, supplements, and carbohydrates you consume will be absorbed at a greater rate. Lactic acid gets flushed faster, and you'll feel fully hydrated. Get the advantage that top athletes have achieved. Try Hydrolyze Ultra today. Visit HydrolyzeUltra.com. That's HydrolyzeUltra.com. P28 High Protein Bread is the official bread of RX Muscle. Are you looking to incorporate more protein into your meals or just want to enjoy bread again? Then look no further. Try the 100% natural P28 High Protein Bread. P28 High Protein Bread is a formulated revolutionary breakthrough product. Packed with whey protein isolate, 14 grams of protein per slice, 12 grams of carbs, 8 essential amino acids, and made with 100% whole wheat. Fear bread no more. Build a better body with P28. Order today at HighProteinBread.com. P28 is also now available at Bodybuilding.com and many other retailers. Order now. HighProteinBread.com. P28 Bread. RX Muscle approved. RxMuscle.com. Now you have a place to turn when you want the truth on bodybuilding, diet, and exercise, up to the minute news, and more. Visit the RxMuscle.com forums featuring celebrity Q and A's with IFBB professional athletes, top amateurs, and the brightest minds in the industry. Listen to our weekly radio shows, including Heavy Muscle Radio, Muscle Girls Inc., After Hours, and more. Contest coverage, videos, even our own social networking site, RxMuscle Place. Visit RxMuscle.com. And welcome back to Quantum Physiques. While well, I'm joined by my guest and scholar, Howard Bloom, my friend and scholar, Howard Bloom. Howard, of course, you have uh, one of the chapters, I believe, in uh, Lucifer Principle called Reality is a Shared Hallucination. And, you know, I was thinking about this as I was watching a show last night on CNN called CNN Heroes, Howard. Now, uh, it was a very inspirational show about people around the world trying to change the world for those who are, who are impoverished or suffering, of course. Um, but it kind of reminded me of something that I want to see what you think about because 
Uh, you know, my area, my expertise is really in health and wellness and medicine. And, you know, there are a lot of very big, famous institutions out there, quote unquote, battling cancer as an example, right? And they have heroes, of course, that raise money and, and are out there doing a lot of things with cancer research. But to some degree, Howard, it's a big illusion because if you were to look at a lot of the scientists out there, uh, like Lannis Pauling, for example, or Gary Null, for example, as well, who are kind of rebels, um, they would say this is all a big, you know, um, shared hallucination that cancer actually is a natural process and when you do not take care of the body properly or when you give it toxic drugs, you actually exacerbate a cancer. And as I'm watching the show last night, Howard, I'm thinking about these heroes. I'm like, wait, isn't this really a reflection of the fact that like Goldman Sachs has actually, or, you know, this Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, but these Wall Streeters down there have torn apart with their capitalistic um, paradigm, torn apart society to some degree and created a much more skewed uh, allocation of resources where the top 1% are extremely wealthy and the rest of the world is down here floundering. I mean, even Noam Chomsky, somebody you and I both are, are respectful of, has said, that we've all got blood on our hands because we support a system that really allows this massive bifurcation of resources. So I just want to see what you think about these concepts. Well, there's a massive manipulation taking place and the massive manipulation is to use um, free market models for you and me and to use socialist models for the, the ah, fin- very financial good. people That's right. at the top. Sure. And That's so right. when, when they fail... Uh, they're now look well. This is a complicated issue, but when they they're fail, they're bailed out. Exactly. Yes, exactly. When the rest Good of point. us fail, we are told that our failure is part of the natural process, and that our pains and agonies are all part of what society needs to move forward. At least we're told that by the followers of Hayek and all of that, and, and Milton Friedman. And and but the real problem is this: the genius of the beast. Um, it, the subtitle is A Radical Revision of Capitalism. It's really a radical revision of Western civilization. Now let's go back to the fact that Western civilization has, has produced absolute wonders. It's added, it's given you two lifetimes for the price of one. Um, it has upped your IQ um, by 35 points in the last 100 years. Um, and it has decreased the amount of violence worldwide. All of that comes from the Western system. But what really is the Western system? It is not just free enterprise, and it certainly is not just government. We learned that with the Marxist model and how it failed, where where government was counted on for everything but couldn't deliver. Um, it's, It's three elements, and it's been three elements since the very beginning of American civilization. Those three elements are free enterprise, capitalist stuff, um, government, and the protest industry. This is the only nation conceived by a protest industry. Remember, how did this country start out? It started out with the Boston Tea Party, which the Tea Party people are right now taking advantage of. They're, they're pinning themselves to it. Sure. Um, it started Jefferson and Madison and Washington were all protesting against the government in England. Um, and the protest industry literally creates the equivalent of Occupy Wall Street, creating a new nation conceived sure. in liberty and you know dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. What Lincoln was pointing out in that in that speech is that we are the first nation ever conceived on the basis of an idea. That has never been done in human history, or had never been done in human history before. Nations at that point were groups of people who were sitting in one place for 800 or 900 years and had developed a common language and that was it. Yeah. 
This is the country literally founded on the basis of the idea that all men are created equal and have an equal right to freedom and happiness. Um, so the, the, the problem here is that we have allowed the bankers to get away with murder. Now, murder. Look, the, bankers, exactly. the bankers are not the cause of our problem. You have to remember, and this is all in the genius of the beast, you have to remember that societies are built on the basis of a search pattern. And we'll go into that pattern in a second. It's called a fission-fusion pattern. And because societies are built on the basis of that pattern, societies have a rhythm. And that rhythm is to have minor recessions every five to six years and to have major depressions every 68 years. Now, the figures are not precise. Sometimes the gap between major depressions can be as little as 50 years. Sometimes it can be as great as 70 or 80 years. But the fact is, if you look over the history of the economic history of, of the West since 1628, you will see this pattern over and over again. So in the days when this pattern began, because you can also see it in Rome, um, in the days when this pattern began, there were no bankers. There was no Wall Street. So Wall Street couldn't possibly be responsible for this. There's an underlying rhythm, and it's very similar to the underlying rhythm of the bees. It's a search structure. It is a pattern of boom and bust. And what happens when we go through periods of boom? We get wildly exuberant about things and think that all kinds of strange new propositions are going to make us rich. And we put money into those things, what's called speculation. And then in a period of a bust, we become afraid of everything and convinced that all of our irrational exuberances were wild fantasies that could never come true. And we try to get rid of whatever it is that we've invested in and discover that everybody else is getting rid of it, too. In other words, we have paroxysms of disbelief, paroxysms of doubt about everything. Now, is there a value to a cycle of wild exuberance and then paroxysms of doubt? You bet. Because wild exuberances do things like the following. In 1810, um, there was a new state that was in the process of formation. It had almost no people in it, Brian. It had so few people that um, one of its towns, um, there was a town on a, an Indian walking path in this territory. Um, it was on the shores of one of the Great Lakes, and it was nothing but a slick in the path, and it had nine European residents. That's it. Nine. Well, these politicians in this state, it had, you know, Americans <laughs> are so political that even if there's scarcely any of them in a territory this, this vast, uh, there uh, are enough to make politics. And there were wild-eyed dreamers in government. And these wild-eyed dreamers wanted to build a canal. And they wanted to build a canal from the Great Lakes to the head of the Mississippi. Well, I got news for you. The Great Lakes is nowhere. There are no people living around the Great Lakes. And if you go as far out as this particular territory and the connection to the Mississippi River, there are no people there. The idea of spending all the money it takes to build a canal and doing it at government expense on the backs of the taxpayers is absurd. It was so absurd that um, for 25 years, the politicians in this little territory lobbied for this. And it took them 25 years to get Washington to finally say that if they issued bonds and collected money from the public, the government would back those bonds. The federal government would back those sure. bonds. So the federal government finally did back the bonds. They finally did raise the money. They finally did build the canal. And guess what this canal and also a bunch of lunatic speculators um, in the private sector had the idea that if you built a railroad, now remember, the town with nine people in it, 
These speculators wanted to build a railroad to the town with nine people in it. <laughs> now, admittedly, the nine people, by the time the scheme was over, had gone up to 350. But Brian, you don't spend hundreds of millions, the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars building a railroad to nowhere. Everybody sure. knows it is a scam. It is simply a way of getting money out of the pockets of widows and orphans. <laughs> it's a way of putting so something over on people, right? That's what speculation yes, is all about. you would think that, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, by the way, just one little note. Uh, land prices in the West were as little as 18 cents an acre. And periodically, when there were periods of boom, people would get wildly excited about Western land and they would buy it at 18 cents an acre. Then when there was a period of a bust, and these busts happened, as, as I say, the small ones every five to six years, people would go, oh my God, what an idiot I was. How could I have put money in this worthless territory? Okay, put all these things together and guess what happened when the railroad went into business, when the canal was opened? That little slick on an Indian path was named after a wild leak. It was the Indian name for a wild leak. The, that name is Chicago. Sure. That city, that little town was called Chicago. And uh, within uh, 30 years, within <laughs> 30 years, it went from a population of 350 people to a population of 90,000 people. Wow. It became the heartland of the Midwest. Now, that nowhere became the Midwest. Why did it become the Midwest? Well, there was another canal that was built by another crazy government enterprise, Governor DeWitt Clinton in New York, linking um, the Atlantic Ocean and New York City to another city that wasn't a city, to another town that would never be anything but a tiny town, Buffalo, New York, my hometown. Mm. Now, when Europe, in those days, when you had a major crash, people starved to death because a major crash was often associated with um, a, fa a crop failure, a crop failure in Russia, a crop failure in Europe. And when a crop failure occurred, people started starving to death. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, because of the Erie Canal, the one that had been built at government expense by DeWitt Clinton, the um, Michigan uh, to the Mississippi Canal and the Galena and Chicago Railroad, all of a sudden, when they, when people were on the verge of starvation, the governments of Europe could literally ship gold to the United States in exchange for grain, grain that came from guess where? The former nowhere, the Midwest. And how did it get to the Europeans? Up the canal, across the Great Lakes, down the Erie Canal, and across the Atlantic Ocean. So they developing this 18 cent an acre property into the property that it is today, going in some cases for $55 million an acre, was an incredible thing. It was not just an incredible thing in terms of personal profit. More important, it was an incredible thing for civilization worldwide because that wheat could also go to China when the Chinese were starving. It changed the nature of what it is to go through a depression. So saying that depressions are caused by bankers is crazy because depressions are caused by a fission-fusion search strategy, by an alternation between wild speculation in which only, remember, with the, the explorer bees, 5% of the population of a 20,000 uh, colony beehive is roughly 1,000 bees. And remember, only five bees were able to come back with a yeah. promising site. And out of those five bees, only one was chosen. So a lot of speculations are going to go down the drain. But it's part of a search strategy. And without yes. the search strategy, we die. So we cannot toss aside. I mean, we can mitigate the problems 
that are caused by periodic depressions and recessions, and we've been doing it. Every time there has been a depression since 1800, we have invented something new to make the process less painful. First, we invented, the English invented poor laws. That was back in the 1600s to keep people from starving. The Americans invented the savings bank so that ordinary people would have access to something that in the past only rich people had access to, banks, so they could put their money in, and when times were bad, they could pull their money out again. We invented all kinds of safety nets. We invented the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Until the 1930s, if you had your money in a bank, that was great. But if the the whole economy went down the tubes, your bank went with it. And you stood in line forever hoping to get your money out of the bank. But by the time you got there, the doors were closed. The bank had shuttered. The bank had gone out of business. The FDA was a federal government guarantee that if you had $100,000 in the bank um, and your bank couldn't give you that $100,000, the federal government would give you the $100,000. We have had, and with the safety net of Social Security, we built all of these things in depressions. So depressions are incredibly vibrant periods of time in their own dark and horrible way. And they are vibrant because we create new kinds of safety nets. The problem with this particular depression is that the the, the banking industry has got such a toehold in Washington uh, and has managed yes. to pull the wool. It's not just the banking industry, it's the rich. <sighs> they have pulled the, walls over the wool over the eyes of the general public and have given the people on the evangelical right the bizarre sense that yes. uh, if rich get richer, this means personal freedom for the people who are not rich. Well, it doesn't. It means personal impoverishment for the people who are not rich. I have a friend a year and a half ago or two years ago um, the office of the Secretary of Defense through a forum based on my, my second book, Global Brain. And they brought in people from the Energy Department, from the State Department, from DARPA, and they flew in people from IBM and from MIT. And one of the people I met at this event was a banker. Remember, I'm the star of this event, so I get a privileged position. <laughs> And uh, this set me up very nicely with the banker. I find him a very curious person, and he was a great audience. And it turns out he's the only one of the people at that table who, uh, in the forum, who were, uh, I mean, was a big conference table where we were talking with each other. And he was the only one at that conference table who came from New York City, which is where I live. So I made arrangements to get together with him, and he insisted on taking me to his club. Well, okay, when I went to his club, which requires a tie. Brian, I hadn't worn a tie in 25 years. Yeah. I don't like wearing ties. Um, but I put on a tie. I went to his godforsaken club. I wandered the street for half an hour, not being able to find the place. I finally stumbled into what looked like a brownstone and hoping that the inner door would be open and there would be somebody I could ask about where this hellish club was. And when I got in, there was a person to my right who uh, looked like a maitre d', and there was a person to my left in a coat check room, and I asked where the club was, and they said, oh, this is it. Well, now, this is a $14 million brownstone, minimum. It's on 53rd Street or something like that, um, just off of Park Avenue. And the place is empty. If you've ever been to the Friars Club or you've ever been to the Harvard Club, there are people all over the place. There are people going up and down the stairs. There are people walking to the check room. There are people in the dining room. This club had nobody in it. They asked who who I was there to see. I said I was there to see my friend John Sullivan. And they said, oh, yes, he's been waiting for for you on the second floor. And they took my coat and my knapsack, which has my computer in it, without my computer. So I went up the stairs, which were empty. 
to the second floor, which was empty. And there in a room off to my right was John Sullivan. Well, John took me into the hallway immediately. There was something he wanted to show me. It was a giant, big framed thing with all kinds of little inserts, business card size inserts. And he said, do you know what this is? Well, I didn't have a clue as to what it was. He said, these are the signatures of the founding fathers of this club. I want you to look at the top line. So I looked at the top line and the founding fathers included Thomas Jefferson, um, William Hamilton, um, wow. and and um, Adam Smith. Uh, not Adam Smith. I mean, or John Smith, whoever was okay. the president. What's his name? Um, sure. It's not Smith. There was a book written about him. The family was John Adams. Reading. John Adams. Sorry. Yes. Yes. There yes. you go. Uh, so, I mean, so this club is the oldest social club established in New York City. Then he took me into the dining room. Well, Brian, normally the dining room is a great big room with 40 tables, and there are people talking quietly to, the, to each other at the Harvard Club and talking loudly to each other at the Flyer Friars Club. This was a small room with one table. <laughs> so we sat down at the one table, and it was just, you know, in some places the, the, the size of the table is just too small for two people. It doesn't make a comfortable fit if you really want to talk to somebody. Well, this was just the perfect size for two people. And a maitre d' walks in. There are only two of us in this entire $14 million brownstone. And he starts reeling off specials. How could they have a chef in here if they only, if John is the only one using the place? <laughs> and well, it turns out that John is from a family of bankers. His mother's side of the family goes all the way back to something like 1635 in New Orleans. They were French. And his father's side of the family are newcomers, immigrants. They came to the United States in 1830 from Ireland. Um, and in John's family, here's how things have worked. Um, you take the new crop of kids, you look them over, you, see, you look to see who are the bright ones and who are the ones who are not so bright. Um, you send the not-so-bright ones off to become senators, and you send the bright <laughs> ones off to become bankers. So it turns <laughs> out that when 9-11 when happened, the, uh, there was an office in, in the World Trade Center that handled all of the world's financial trades. All the financial trades went through this office, and the office had disappeared. And the world financial system was in danger of going down. John was the one who jumped in and rigged together a new financial system on the fly. Well, okay, so John has taken me to this incredible dinner, right? It means I owe him a dinner or a lunch or something. So I invited him to dinner at my expense. And I went back up to 53rd Street. John apparently has a very tiny little geographical ambit. Um, he had picked a restaurant only two doors away from his club. Um, <laughs> so, so I walked into the restaurant. John was a little bit late. John walked in. He brought his wife, which I thought was very flattering that he wanted his wife to meet me. And John, the first words out of John Mar John's mouth were, I'm paying for this dinner. Well, no, it's my turn to pay, right? Even if I am living in relative poverty compared to John, yeah. um, the poverty of an artist and a thinker. Um, <laughs> and um, John said, no, 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 I'm paying. You don't understand. We just came from the track. Okay, well, my parents used to occasionally go to the racetrack. I've never been to one, but it's something that apparently humans do. Um, so I could relate to that a tiny bit. And he said, and, and our horse won. Okay, that's interesting. He said, and our horse was a horse owned by two friends of mine. Okay, that's interesting. So he has friends who own racehorses. I don't have friends who own racehorses. He's yeah. in a different league than I am. Uh, and he says, no, no, no. The friends, not to worry. The fr don't worry about the check. The friends are Nicholas Brady and Paul Volcker. 
Well, you know who Nicholas oh. Cage, right? Paul Volcker. Yeah, this is like uh, you know, this is like the um, the Zeitgeist movie. We're looking at like Skull and Bones Society here now. We're getting right. into some dark dark yeah, hallways well, of humanity. These are two guys who ran the American economy. They were both heads, yes. I think, of the Federal Deposit. No, it was the heads of the Fed. Um, the heads of the, the but, NWO, the New World Order. <laughs> right. So, so um, okay, so he has these friends. I mean, Nicholas Brady back in the 1970s when the Mexican peso was about to go sure. through the floorboard. I remember him, the yeah. American dollar and all the rest of the world's currencies with it. Nicholas Brady jumped in and invented something called the Brady Bond and saved, world, saved the world's economy. Um Paul Volcker is famous for having done the same thing. In fact, he's been a major advisor to um, President Obama. Um, okay, so then we sit down and we're talking, and it turns out that John has racehorses. Racehorses? I don't, I don't hang around with people generally who have racehorses. That's a strange privilege. It takes an awful lot of money. But not to worry, says John, he only owns 35 of them. 35 racehorses? Are you kidding me? Um <laughs> And he said, no, 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 don't worry about a thing. We sire them in Europe and we raise them in Kentucky. You sire racehorses in Europe and yeah. you raise them in Kentucky. Think of the bills for airfare. Oh, for it's these crazy, horses. Yeah. Transportation. Think of the size of the staff you need to maintain in order to, to sire these horses in Europe. You have to have an operation in Europe and you have to have an operation in Kentucky. Uh, we're yeah. talking about an industry here and all of this is a hobby. And so John says, no, 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 don't worry about it. We only have 12 show dogs. Well, that's the first modest thing I've heard. I mean, by now, that's, yeah. even that sounds modest. Um, and I like dogs, so the more the better as far as I'm concerned. So what is it that the people of the Tea Party are fighting and struggling their asses for when they think they are fighting and struggling their asses for liberty? They are not. They are fighting and struggling for the right of John O'Connor to have an extra racehorse. That's obscene. John doesn't need an extra racehorse. I'm sorry. The middle class needs money and the poor yes. need money because they will spend it. And I've owned two successful businesses. I've founded from scratch two successful businesses. I did them both as science projects. I did them both to come to understand mass behavior. Yes, I am a science geek. Yes, science is my base. But I have run two businesses and I can tell you as a business owner, we make investments in our businesses. We hire extra people in our businesses when we have customers. Not when we have investors, when we have customers. Because if we don't have customers, the investors won't invest. And we don't yeah. want to take the money from investors. And where do you get customers? Well, Henry Ford knew how you got customers. Henry Ford knew that he was paying his, uh, the, the men in his factory $2 a day. That was a lot of money back then, and that was the standard. And he realized that unless he raised those rates, he would not have customers because he was putting out a $500 automobile, an automobile that, was, that, that could be afforded only by a middle class. And unless he raised his workers from lower class to middle class, there would be nobody buying Model Ts because only the rich would buy cars, and they wouldn't buy a Model T. They would buy sure. a fancy luxury car. So Henry Ford raised the salary from $2 a day to $5 a day without a union pressuring him because he knew that you couldn't have a mass, con a mass production economy without a mass consumer economy. And that wisdom has been totally reversed by the Republicans. Um, the Republicans have said and government is the enemy of uh, growth. Well, they're dead wrong. If the government ha hadn't built those two canals, the Erie Canal... 
and the canal from the from Michigan, uh, from Lake Michigan or whatever lake it is to the Mississippi, we'd have no Midwest. It was a combination of government and private industry and the protest industry because the protest industry started in the United States uh, and in Europe in the 1780s at the same time the industrial revolution began why that was the anti-slavery movement and the anti-slavery movement had achieved the banishment of slavery in in england by 1808 after 28 years of protest finally the protest industry made a big difference in in 1848 um, when we went to war with mexico and we won and we added new mexico colorado nevada and, and california to the territory of the United States. It's a war that uh, made America what it is today. There were people of good conscience who couldn't stand the fact that we were shedding blood for no reason whatsoever, with no good cause. And one of them was Henry David Thoreau. And he wrote a book on civil disobedience. And without that book, we would never have had Gandhi and Martin Luther King. So it's the protest industry, the government, and private industry that make a country go in the Western system. And right now, we are obsessed. Any good thing in excess is a poison. Private enterprise, and that's true of testosterone. That's why sure. testosterone is a problem. It's also true of private enterprise. Trying to run the entire country on the basis of a free market would destroy this country because it would destroy the balance between the three elements. And it has been destroying this country. How can we tell? The Bush policies which are the policies of shrink the government and put all your money into free market everything and privatize even water supplies. Um, George Bush was involved with the privatization of water supplies, I believe it was in Mexico. Well, that can be a dangerous thing because you may privatize it, but you don't introduce competition, and competition is the essence of the free market. You have a monopoly, a private monopoly instead of a public monopoly, a, a monopoly that doesn't have the obligations to the public that a private or public monopoly has because it has no competitors. So if it That's poisons right. it's if it poisons the people to whom it's supplying water, screw you. I'm making my profit. That's what I'm here for. So and and there are economists who have traced the, the decline of America's business as a business compared to China um, to the fact that we have put an emphasis on shareholder value. In other words, how much money can you take out of a business? Not how much new stuff can you create with a business. Not, I mean, look, Apple, if Apple had been run on the basis of shareholder value instead of run on the basis of creating new things that create demands we didn't even know we had before, we would have no Apple. And, and Steve Jobs became a saint the minute he died because he represented an aspiration nobody has been able to articulate. And that's the aspiration to reach toward higher things, to be brilliantly inventive, and to provide entirely new powers to the humans around us and humans all over the world. Because that's what free enterprise, that's what the Western system, that's what the balance between government, uh, free enterprise, and the protest industry is all about. Balance. And without the balance, without balance, you can't ride a bicycle. Without balance, you can't ride a motorcycle. You're over on your ass. And losing balance by going entirely for free enterprise is a... That's a great point, Howard. And of course, without balance, you can't build your opposing muscle groups like your biceps and your triceps and your quadriceps and your hamstrings. <laughs> yes, tensors and the extensors are one of the most perfect examples for what we're talking about in the world. You're absolutely sure, sure. right. It operates on a balance. I mean, if you tried to take only the muscles of your biceps um, and put them on a beach somewhere and see how far they could get, you know, crawling out of the <laughs> water and building a civilization, they'd get nowhere. If you tried to put your bones on the beach, crawling out 
to found a civilization. The bones would accomplish absolutely nothing. It's the balance between these two, the rigidity of the bones and the opposite tendency, the total flexibility of the muscles that makes your muscle system work. And then there's the balance between the tensors and the extensors. Cut a tensor and the extensor takes over. You'd have an arm, if you cut the muscle on the bottom, your arm would be, your fist would be up against your shoulder for the rest of your life and there's no way in hell you could ever move it. (laughs) That's Um, right. And that's exactly what this this voodoo economics, as a uh, as as one very smart Republican termed it. He came up with that term when he was looking at Reaganomics, which is in, in essence what George Bush used to drive us into the ground. And George Bush can't be blamed for the depression because depressions, as I say, are organic. They happen cyclical, sure, yeah, yeah. They happen to bacterial colonies. They happen to. Um, uh, to beehives, and they happen to humans. They're part of the search process. They're part of that fission-fusion strategy, that explore and then consolidate strategy, the speculate and then build safety net strategy. But this depression was brought on in large part, or made worse in large part, by Bush's policies um, of lowering taxes and expecting that somehow magically money would appear in the treasury. Trickle down, sure. Yeah, definitely. Hey, we're out of time right now. Okay. I want to get you back. Of course, um, you have a lot of interesting, um, you know, interesting ideas to share with our audience. And uh, once again, for anyone who wants to get more information on your work, HowardBloom.net. Okay, and of course, your books, uh, The Lucifer Principle, Global Brain, and um, the latest one, which is... Uh, um, there you go. Exactly. Are available on Amazon and bookstores throughout the nation, of course, right? Right. Exactly. Great. Once again, Howard, I want to thank you for your time, and uh, it's been a fascinating journey. If anybody wants to surf the zeitgeist or take a roller coaster ride through a diverse array of topics, such as Howard has just skimmed the surface on, I urge you to really begin with his first book, Lucifer Principle, and work your way up. They are fascinating reads. And I want to thank you once again for tuning in to Quantum Physiques. This is your host, Brian Cunningham. Stay tuned next week for another great episode. Quantum Physiques with Brian Cunningham is dedicated to harnessing the power of the Holy grail of health, fitness, lifestyle, and success. And you'll hear Quantum Physiques every Wednesday evening, only on Rx Muscle.